Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of Group Publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to Holy Soup, where we regularly challenge the status quo and sometimes proclaim that the emperor has no clothes, to take a hint from the classic children's story. And today's topic is higher education, particularly Christian higher education, Christian colleges and seminaries. And for those institutions, many of them are facing some tough times right now. And we're aware already of the tough times in the American church with declining attendance, membership, finances, and even influence in the community. It's an institution that's really in trouble, but institutions of higher education may be facing an even bigger crisis. They're dealing with financial trouble, declining enrollments, diminishing support from denominational coffers, faculty and staff layoffs in many situations, campus closures, not to mention a certain level of disenchantment that uh, is now cropping up from students and graduates who question whether their considerable investment in college or seminary adequately prepared them for the realities of everyday ministry. So what's happening in our institutions of higher learning? Is anyone asking the hard questions about the relevance of these institutions and, and how they're operated today? People are noticing in some cases that the emperor has no clothes. Well, our guest today is Dr. Roland Martinson. He was the professor of pastoral theology and ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, also professor of children, youth, and family ministry. And now he serves on the Board of Regents for Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. And uh, in his past, he was also a congregational pastor. Lots of hats that uh, Raleigh Martinson has worn. So welcome, Raleigh. Thank you. Great to have you on board. You know, a couple of years ago, Luther Seminary, where uh, you were a long-standing faculty member, found itself running multi-million-dollar deficits. Enrollments were dropping, spending down its endowments, and that led to budget cutting and staff layoffs and the resignation of the seminary's president. You know, the story at Luther is not an isolated one. Uh, as uh, I've looked across some of the stats from other Christian colleges and seminaries across the country, student enrollments are down in many of them. Why do you suppose that's the case across the board? Well, you're, you're certainly accurate in terms of almost all denominations now, uh, including uh, evangelicals for whom for a significant period of time this was a lesser phenomenon, uh, my reading of the situation as I look at literature and as I listen to students themselves is that it comes from uh, a, a combination of factors. Uh, one of those factors, I believe, is certainly uh, the millennial uh, sense that, that institutions aren't as authentic in their, uh, in their missions as uh, these uh, young men and women w would hope they would be. Uh, they require a, a great deal of bureaucratic uh, work that doesn't have to do with the sense of mission itself. And so th there's a, uh, a, a certain malaise in regard to young people's sense of institutions, and in this case, particularly the institutional church. So that's certainly one phenomenon. I think a second 
is many millennials uh, have uh, disengaged from the vital life of the church for a variety of reasons, and consequently we just have significantly fewer numbers uh, of uh, people in the faith, in vital experience of the faith, seeing the faith and faith communities as places of engagement, as a way to, in fact, uh, live out their Christian calling. I think a third is uh, those young men and women, and particularly in the millennials, there's a strong sense of, I want to make a difference in the world. And uh, as they look at congregations, at, at least uh, a large number of them, they see them, uh, rather than re-engaging or deeply engaging and making a difference, they see them disengaging or they see them having little or no real impact in their communities. So those are at least some of the reasons. If you if you put all that together, within it costs a great deal to get such an education. These four factors have created a, a very quick downturn in the numbers of students at our seminaries. Wow. You know, you had uh, mentioned at first the whole issue of mission, and I saw a quote from Anthony Ruger with the Center for the Study of Theological Education at Auburn Theological Seminary. He said, sooner or later, you do have to ask, what is our mission? What are we trying to do, and how can we best accomplish it? There are very deep questions about what our identity is, who we are, what we do. So, Raleigh, uh, do institutions today, do, do our institutions of higher learning actually know the mission? And what is the mission? Well, that's a huge question, and it differs uh, particularly in terms of colleges and universities vis-a-vis seminaries, I think. There's a diff- they're similar, but also quite different in terms of those processes. Absolutely critical question. Uh, as I look at higher education, particularly college and university higher education and, and Christian participation in, in uh, higher education, uh, there are generally out there uh, three responses to the question of why, as Christians, are we uh, engaged in this enterprise anyhow? One of those is to become strong propagators of the faith, both in terms of sharpening knowledge of the tradition, uh, providing new capacities in terms of witness, uh, developing um, being that is identity, belonging that is a deep interaction in the faith community itself, uh, behaving, acting, learning the practices and living out the practices of faith, believing, strengthening our sense of what we believe, so that these schools see themselves often to be like Bible colleges. Uh, They see themselves to be strongly uh, teaching the faith as students are there. That's one set of uh, colleges and universities that we see across the country. And regularly, these are Roman Catholic, uh, they're evangelical, sometimes fundamentalist in terms of their particular uh, sense of mission. There's a second that essentially were colleges and universities that at the outset of their lives uh, saw themselves to be an expression of uh, a mature living out of the thoughtfulness of the faith, And what's happened for them over time is that uh, with the secularization of society, the pluralism of the varieties of faith expressions in in the world, they've backed away from the direct engagement and practice of the faith, uh, seeing in some cases 
that to be uh, propagators of a particular tradition is in fact anti-intellectual and uh, moves against the grain of an open academic environment. And so there are a great many mainline colleges that have taken that particular stance, and if you take a look at their, their enrollments, uh, the enrollments are across the board with a great number of uh, students having uh, little affiliation de uh, declared. Hmm. There's a third, I think, that see their mission to be a, a thoughtful, reflective expression of how the best of faith operates, first in, in terms of the curious openness of academic excellence and understands faith and, and belief and their peculiar, particular peculiar faith to be one expression of truth itself. And so this mix becomes a kind of third, it's oftentimes called a, a third pathway in terms of how the mission of the church is, or the mission of, of the college or university is carried on. You know, I'm curious from uh, someone who was very much inside the machine, who does the machine view as the customer? Is it students? Is it parents? Is it congregations? Is it the church at large? Is it the faculty? Uh, is it the institution itself? Who, who do you believe is uh, in, uh, in the hearts of uh, the administrators and leaders of our institutions? Who do they view as the true customer? That question uh, is received and understood in the worlds that, that I see of higher education uh, uh, looked at through a lens that, that tends to come out along a continuum with two uh, radically different uh, understandings of the question. On the one end of, uh, of the, that continuum, uh, there's the high value of that question. That is, it's absolutely critical that those engaged in higher education ask the question, who is the customer? And when they ask that question, it's critical to keep in mind that the primary customer uh, is, some would say, the student. That is, that when the student finishes, completes, graduates uh, from this particular institution, whether it's a, a bachelor's degree or a graduate degree, that they're we can look at that particular graduate and say, uh, we were here to improve the life of the student, the career possibilities of the student, etc. Uh, others know that the, the persons who pay for the education regularly are parents. And so parents are asking questions of return on, in, uh, return on investment. Uh, is this a safe place or a good place for uh, our uh, uh, our daughter or son to develop. And so parents are looked at as customers. Uh, some people um, in higher education uh, look at civil society as, uh, as the customer. That is, uh, higher education is essential to a, a body politic that is vital, lively in terms of both business, uh, civil discourse, and the development of government. Uh, there are, in fact, uh, now, a great many uh, institutions of higher education that are for-profit organizations, and we've seen some evidence that these places exist for stake for the stockholders 
and for those who run them, seemingly, rather than for students uh, in terms of their concern about graduation rate, graduation rates and so forth. So if one is on that end of the continuum asking questions about who's the customer, the answers are, in many cases, vary depending on what the impulse is. Mm. On the other end of the continuum are those who say that's the wrong question, uh, that the, the critical issue is not the customer, the critical issue is the mission, and the mission is to create a place where truth is pursued, where there's openness, there's reflection, etc., 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 so that it's the learning itself that drives the institution rather than the customer. Mm. The fact of the matter is, these days, uh, what's dramatically changing everything is that if you don't ask the question of the customer, the customer is, in fact, deeply influencing this as debt becomes greater and overwhelming as people finish, that is, graduates come out and can't get jobs, as uh, parents look at the process of, of sorting out schools and back away from participation. So it's no matter where one is on that continuum, it's an absolutely essential question and needs to be looked at carefully, thoughtfully, reflectively by an institution as they put together their mission. And, and how much customer feedback do most institutions solicit and, and receive. You know, many studies of graduates, people who are now out in the field in ministry today, uh, they give less than stellar critiques for how their college or seminary prepared them in some cases. There was a recent LifeWay study, for instance, that showed that uh, about half of the respondents said that their schools did not prepare them for areas of actual day-to-day ministry, such as how to handle the people side of ministry. So how much, of, how, how much feedback like that do institutions solicit and receive and respond to? It's, it's grown over time, but too late, or it's late in coming. Uh, there are a number of studies now in terms of both college and universities and seminaries. At Luther Seminary, where uh, I was dean for a period of time, uh, about 20 years ago, uh, uh, we did a major study of our graduates uh, uh, and pastors out in the field. And what's so fascinating is that they told us that we were, in fact, uh, creating students for a church or graduates for a church that no longer existed. Wow. And, and in, in essence, they talked about uh, getting them ready to participate in a traditional church of immigrants and they were, in fact, in a situation of mission where they were having to make uh, the case for Christianity in a world with shifted narratives, shifted values, different communication processes, where rather than function inside the life of the church, they needed to be able to equip people and themselves to be able to function outside the, uh, outside the boundaries of the church out in the world. Mm-hmm. So there have been now a number of studies that, for example, are starting to work their way back into both seminaries and higher education and profoundly affect not just curricula, but also the the types of faculty uh, itself. We'll be right back with Raleigh in just a moment. But first, I'd like to tell you about some quick and concise resources for pastors to pick up some practical tips for real-world ministry challenges. Now, this is a series of small books called Practical Stuff for Pastors. This is nitty-gritty practical help. The titles in the series are Dealing with Conflict, Leading Change, Taking Care of Business, and Managing People. 
Each of these is just around 80 pages, very quick read, and they're available at bookstores, online retailers, and at group.com. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Roland Martinson. You know, a few years ago, I was involved at a forum, including uh, faculty from different uh, Christian colleges and universities and, and uh, theological schools. And the whole issue of uh, the type of preparation that uh, the schools are providing for people came up. And uh, the, the quote that I remember one of the uh, faculty members saying is, we're not here to provide practical training. Uh, we're in the theory business. And people need to figure out for themselves how to make practical application of uh, what they might pick up here. Uh, I also read uh, a quote from uh, a retired minister, Reverend Alan Proctor, who said, uh, saying seminaries prepare pastors to lead is like saying cooking school prepares you to operate a restaurant. Where do you come down and what have you seen in terms of how well we are preparing people for actual ministry, practical versus theoretical, et cetera? It's a huge issue, and uh, those uh, attitudes would no longer carry much weight in the real discourse of, so what is it uh, a seminary graduate, for example, uh, needs to be able to be know and do as they now participate in leadership in the church. And what I hear growing in this conversation is that processes of preparation uh, and continuing accompanying development, first of all, uh, rather than being short period of time at the outset, need to continue alongside of a leader in Christian communities across a lifetime. And as they do so, uh, there are four critical elements that must be attended in that, in that educational training development process. One of them is, is the being, the character, the spirit, the faith, the life of the leader, him or herself. Uh, the second is that uh, these, it's critical that these persons can be uh, healthy, able, direct, uh, affirming, uh, able to work with conflict in terms of sociality, relationality. Faith itself is about trusted relationships, and faith communities are whatever else they are, major micro and macro systems of relationships, so that the, the capacity to be a person who can significantly healthy, healthily relate is absolutely critical. Mm. Uh, thirdly, th that there are skills all the way from, on the one hand, hermeneutical skills, interpretive skills in terms of the best of Scripture, to reading uh, living human documents, audiences, and then to be able to, in common parlance and language that people can understand, to be able to be translators of the power of Scripture and the center of the Gospel in terms of new times. And then, finally, uh, to uh, be persons who can enter uh, into dialogue with secularists and, and, and people of, with other narratives that guide their lives, uh, including the pluralism, the interfaith realities in which we live, people to, who know the truth as they understand it but are open and can refine it and rework it. So I hear these four elements to be key touchstones in whatever uh, the seminaries 
and uh, the processes of accompanying persons in leadership must, in fact, entail it in the future. You know, for theological schools, I think uh, the impression that people have is that theology is the main event, the main course. Uh, yet many people who I've met say that uh, they went to seminary with a real zeal to deepen their faith in Jesus Christ, only to have it wrung out of them in seminary. Now, I did not go to seminary, but uh, I, I have heard this a number of times. What have you heard? What have you seen? And if that is the case, why does that happen? I think that has been the case, and in some cases perhaps still is true, but less and less the case. Here's why I think for a long period of time it was a major way of functioning. The notion was that uh, persons came to seminary, students came to seminary with a strong knowledge that had been developed in a relatively naive way of Scripture and, uh, and particular Christian tradition, and, and that it was unreflected. And so this strong knowledge of Scripture, this strong understanding of the God narrative within a particular tradition now needed to be challenged. It, it, it needed to be critically reflected upon. It needed to be deepened and broadened. Uh, a couple of generations ago, there, that may have been the case, and it may have been helpful. It was done well. Today, so many people... Very few, in fact, generally in the culture, or not many, and, and less and less come to seminary with a very thoroughgoing understanding of Scripture, a thoroughgoing understanding of uh, the tradition that they're in. And so rather than rip into and reflect, it's absolutely critical that some of the best catechesis and development of Bible study and so forth be done so that the tradition, the narrative, can be built up in a wise and thoughtful way rather than being attacked. So I see uh, a recognition of the folly of what you've just described and a turning toward uh, seminary education as being constructive and generative. So you, th you see things getting better in that regard over the past 10 years or so? I think so. Uh, yes, indeed. And the question now, of course, is after it's taken so long in the turning, uh, Will we have students coming, mm. and and will we have enough coming? And if they don't come, will we go out and join them? Uh, my sense is that, uh, particularly in theological education, uh, the the loci of theological education is more often than not going to be in vital congregations where there are energy centers, rather than primarily in academia. Uh, seminaries of the future, or theological studies and ministerial education in the future is going to look more like the Mayo Clinic than it looks like Harvard University. Hmm. You know, I'm curious about uh, where the accountability to the customer, if you will, the student, the person or the family who pays the tuition or the person who uh, accumulates a lot of student debt, uh, where's the accountability uh, to them? And, and I ask that in the context of my observation and some of the reading that I've done shows some dubious signs that the system is, is really not set up to benefit uh, the customer, whether that customer is the student or, or in the ministry sense, of the congregation where the student winds up years later. Uh, for instance, uh, faculty positions are often 
offered on factors other than the ability to effectively teach and mentor students. Uh, they're offered on factors like uh, whether the person themselves uh, has an advanced academic degree. Are they the author of a book? And the ability to help someone learn and the demonstration that, uh, that that's a lot different than, than demonstrating that you can get some publisher to publish your manuscript. Uh, and speaking as a publisher, I can tell you that's, <laughs> that's, that's true. There are two very different things between the ability to teach, the ability to help people learn, and simply uh, convincing a publisher to publish your manuscript. They are, uh, but not necessarily anesthetical, and they, not, and, and they can, in fact, I think, be put together on a team. Let me use uh, the Mayo Clinic as an example. If, uh, if one gets inside the Mayo Clinic, which is uh, an educational process uh, where the finest practice of medicine is the issue, so in essence, the objective and the, and the customer is what's going on with the exercise of the thing itself on the ground. In this case, it would be the exercise of faith and ministry and the, the mission of the church. So uh, where ought all this to be uh, focused? I think we need in our redesigning of educational and, and equipping processes to focus on the thing itself. The activity of ministry, the, the work of the Spirit in congregations, individual people's lives, and so forth. Now, in order to do that, uh, at the Mayo Clinic, they have a, a whole variety of people in a whole variety of what I would call excellences. Those who know and can do research, those who are actually uh, carrying on the practice and can do it well, and have it feedback loops about doing it badly, so that what, what occurs is one ha has a continuum of excellence that's focused in the practice. That's what I think we have to get to, and that will mean different faculty cultures. That will mean different faculty types. Uh, it will mean an integration of what's oftentimes been looked at as silos or looked at as antithetical. So there's going to be, I think, uh, a, a greater focus on excellence of practice and a greater focus on a, an integrated curriculum, an integrated faculty. You know, another one of these dubious signs that uh, as someone standing on the outside looking in that I see, and as I see as uh, the uh, head of an organization, that dubious thing to me that I have to bring to light is tenure. And I realize that uh, tenure is... Uh, uh, not used in every Christian institution as widely as it may be used in uh, the secular world, but uh, we still see uh, tenure being used in some Christian institutions as well. And and I got to say that 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 seems to be more about protecting the employee than equipping uh, the students for uh, successful ministry out in the world. I think there's a bigger question, uh, and that question is, uh, first of all, what are the what are the characteristics and credentials that one wants for a particular task within the uh, theological study and ministerial uh, educational process? And and so how do how do those particular criteria uh, get built into the models? And in some cases, there might be some value in in particular periods of time where a person, in fact, has certain stability in, in terms of, of being present. 
uh, of, of knowing that they have a task. The fact of the matter is, in, in most colleges and universities now, the growing faculties are not tenured. The growing faculties are contracts and, in fact, uh, persons who are part-time adjuncts. So that, that phenomena you're talking about has been greatly challenged. Mm. I think now, then there are several other questions. Uh, if, if one asks the question of what are the characteristics and what are the credentials, how do we create feedback loops that are honest, quick, and regular so that there's a 360 evaluation so that the evaluation process goes on in ways that enable the institution to stay true to its mission. What, what happened in higher education, I think, over a period of time is that there was the, the persons on the line were so insulated from the, if you will, product and the customer that the, there wasn't the kind of feedback loops that enabled the institution to be honest in its evaluation and, in fact, to do that quickly enough to respond to the changes that were taking place around it. So there's a whole shift in ecology that must take place, and you've named a phenomena that's now under examination and changing. Hmm. You know, some have, uh, have observed and have at least taken the opinion that the enterprise is set up to maintain itself and its old methodologies rather than actually equip people for life beyond the institution. Higher ed is delivering a product that uh, fewer people are finding worth the investment. One of the things that uh, comes to light with that is uh, the methodology. And colleges and universities across the board are known in terms of the educational process to be largely based on, on the lecture teaching method. Uh, you know, it's interesting to uh, see some of the uh, quotes that are coming out now from people who are re-examining that whole methodology. For instance, Stanford professor and, and Nobel laureate Carl Wyman said, the college lecture is the educational equivalent of bloodletting, <laughs> one long overdue for revision. When we measure how little people learn from an actual lecture, it's really small, he said. For Wyman, uh, the fact that most colleges and universities don't even bother to systematically measure teaching quality is the bigger problem festering in higher education. Administrators, he argues, are instead obsessed with publishing and research funding, which remain the bedrock of tenure and promotion, he said. So what do you see happening there in terms of the methodology of, of how uh, this uh, educational endeavor is being conducted? Well, first of all, there's very little probability or possibility of living inside that uh, bubble anymore because the, the information in lectures is now almost uh, universal, universally free online in a yeah. whole variety of ways. Mm -hmm. So that what's challenging the whole notion of you have to go and listen to someone speak it is that in all kinds of differing venues, MOOCs, etc., cetera, uh, online books, these materials, the, the actual data itself is available. So th th there's a huge shift that's taking place across the, the board in higher education in terms of going to integrative and experiential and participatory learning. And so you'll find uh, now incredible um, avenues of development in terms of student research with faculty, uh, case study material, internships, 
hybrids of uh, on online and face-to-face. Uh, there's there's more and more and more now that's being done to put together a breadth of pedagogies. And unless uh, faculty and colleges and universities and seminaries do this, they're going to go out of existence. Mm. Because the, 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 what's happened is that the ecology within which learning is taking place has so dramatically changed, the customer, if you will, the larger ecology will in fact put the outliers out of business. Hmm. Wow. So you see some real shifts taking place there now. It, and yes, and it has to, uh, or these, these places can't exist. I mean, if they think, uh, if these colleges who teach this way and seminaries who act in this kind of way, unless they have huge endowments, and that may be a few, they're, they're not going to have customers, their people aren't going to be effective, the feedback loops are going to be such that they will no longer exist. You know, another area that uh, I'd be curious to get uh, your take on is how potential students, those who are applying, are screened and accepted into our institutions today. And it seems like there's still a, a pretty heavy reliance on uh, their demonstrated ability to perform on a multiple choice test, the ACT or SAT for undergraduates uh, coming up to college or university. And it seems like institutions are looking for students who can conform to the institution's machine of short-term memory fact recall rather than equipping for life after the institution. Now, Raleigh, i got to say, as, as an employer uh, here, I, I don't give a rip how someone performs on a factoid recall test. And many people here uh, at my organization who are wildly successful and effective in their ministry work, uh, they'll tell you they did not perform particularly well on those multiple-choice tests. They would have gotten screened out, even though uh, they're tremendous contributors to uh, the work that we do. So talk to me about uh, how we're screening and selecting students today. Well, there's a huge argument underway now regarding getting ready or who's ready to engage in higher learning. On the one hand, there's evidence that cognitive capacity still matters in terms of of the learning process. But it's also the case that several other intelligences are absolutely critical in the learning process, uh, including bodily kinesthetic, uh, that one wouldn't imagine which has to do with participatory processes and so forth, say nothing about existential, say nothing about emotional, etc. So your question opens into a, a, a big set of issues that are underway. They have several elements to them uh, as they, as they uh, unfold. Uh, so, for example, the average high school student now is not simply working hard if they're going to go to college to get good grades. They're padding their resume. They're off volunteering, etc., 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 so that a large number of colleges and universities, it's ACT and GP, their grade point average, plus A, B, C, D, E. And, and oftentimes, questions being asked, is that the best way to get ready uh, for going on to higher education? Another set of questions are, are, are being asked in terms of uh, how does one make education available socioeconomically 
are there is there a class of people or are there classes of people that are being because they can't participate in some of this preparation process that in fact sets up via the best schools highly that are highly cognitively oriented uh, ways of, of of either getting good AS, uh, ACTs or SATs and having a good GPA or in fact having padded a resume uh, how might such persons get ready and be a part of the process. Uh, There are, I think now, a a host of generative questions that will open up uh, this whole matter so that the combination then of how you get ready for and who who the student is that comes and the the pedagogy that's shifting will, in fact, uh, provide a better employee for you. And so one of the places that finally comes together is to ask the question, rather than just looking at liberal arts or vocational study, uh, what do those learning experiences look like that, that are combinations of whole life development, uh, uh, whole world development, and whole career development, so that uh, you get a person that uh, can, in fact, be curious, imaginative, write, speak, uh, knows how to learn and can continue to learn. So you've raised a, a really critical area of exploration that's going to be one of the major foci for higher learning in the future. Hmm. Well, speaking of the future, and as we wind up here, Raleigh, what, uh, as you've thought about all of these things and you take a look at uh, where our institutions of higher learning in the Christian realm are going and what their survivability is, what's the answer? What, what needs to happen? Where do you see things needing to go? I find what's most satisfying are, first of all, people like yourself and a great many of others, both within the church, parents, uh, and within higher education, starting being open to and working, first of all, the questions. Uh, uh, Goldie Blumenstick's book, American Higher Education in Crisis? Question mark is probably uh, the uh, uh, prime example of, of now let's uh, get at the questions, let's look at them honestly. I think that's very promising. Secondly, uh, rather than consolidating scarcity, which is oftentimes the, the impulse as, as, as the times change and there are fewer resources. Uh, I'm looking forward to those places that are uh, putting together networks that are uh, attempting new experiments, new pilots, in which a variety, a network of partners are drawn together uh, utilizing uh, many of these new ideas that we've spoken about in terms of who are students, who are faculty, what kind of pedagogy, uh, who, who, who is the customer, uh, what is it they're going to be doing uh, as they finish, putting those questions together and working them around basic fundamentals, including who can afford to pay for this expensive process mm. and how are we going to do that. So uh, I see those places where there's imagination and where pilots are, are being attempted. Oftentimes they're being attempted by congregations. Oftentimes they're being worked by... Uh, colleges and universities and uh, new forms of seminaries that are uh, willing to risk in getting at these questions. So I, I think it's 
we, we don't have a lot of the answers yet. I think it's about being open and honest with, the, with, with things that we're facing and then looking at the promising possibilities and putting them together in pilots. Mm. As uh, you look down the road and you think of uh, where things have been in terms of uh, our theological schools preparing people for ministry and that that has been the, the normal route that people think of, what do you think is the uh, survivability of that model going forward? Are we going to continue to have uh, these uh, institutions that have to charge more and more for fewer and fewer students coming in in order to equip our people for ministry or something else? I'll take seminary education, which I know best. Uh, as I look into the future, uh, I believe we're going to have, I think, four differing kinds of models. Uh, one of them, there, there will still be, I think, uh, a highly edu academic educational model for uh, a particular set of tasks. Uh, and maybe these uh, colleges, I mean, these seminaries, these theological study and ministerial educational places are going to be attached to Christian colleges and universities. That's going to be one model. On the other end, uh, we're going to have processes of just-in-time, uh, just-in-place learning where people enter ministry and then through a whole variety of, of processes, cohorts of people together with mentor, with uh, online learning, with face-to-face -face experience, case studies, etc., accompanying people who are learning to learn and doing ministry across a lifetime. The notion of graduation and having essentially accomplished the essentials, I think, is going to go away, and people are going to start into ministry and be developed as their life in ministry unfolds. I think a third are going to be institutes that will get at particularly strong ways of preparing persons to do certain kinds of ministry, and those will be places where those practices are carried on most specifically. Some of those will be in international settings. Some of those will be on the ground in particular settings here, urban and elsewhere. I think uh, the fourth, uh, congregations. The, what we're going to see, I think, is a great many congregations become places where the vitality of faith as experience, being, will give rise to strong places of belonging, will give rise to the, the, the development of skills where people not only birth new congregations but birth leaders, and that these people uh, formulate and together shape a new way, a new normal, for or a particular new pathway for this kind of process to develop. And one of the critical elements in all of them will be uh, revenue flow, and it'll be critical that the... The, the place from which the finances come have to do with the actual practice of ministry rather than paying someone to go away. There's, in fact, an ongoing development of funding as the learning unfolds. Mm. Well, it sounds like uh, the uh, landscape is changing and will continue to change, and there uh, could be some exciting new models on the horizon that uh, will help to equip and train our people for ministry in uh, very new and uh, hopefully refreshing ways in the future. I think so, and uh, uh, that the pace of that will do nothing but in increase. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, Raleigh, for joining us today. Uh, this has been really helpful for us to get uh, an idea of uh, what's happening out there and what the future might hold in uh, the whole area of higher education. Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks for your interest in asking the questions. Thank you, Raleigh.